Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic. Last time, Kelsey took a look at the historiography of the Old Republic, and we took a brief break from the Knights of the Old Republic narrative. Now, in episode 33, we arrive on the on the Starforge, get back together with our goth girlfriend, have our date with destiny, and hopefully in Knights of the Old Republic in a fitting fashion. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. Uh, real quick, we have a couple of corrections from uh, episode 31. Uh, first, we mistakenly referred to the building that resembles the Temple of the Ancients as the Bulgarian Communist Party headquarters, which is incorrect. The building to which we were referring is the um, Buzludza Monument. I am. I apologize. I screwed that up terribly. It, I apologize to all speakers of of other languages. I apologize. Um, which was built in central Bulgaria in 1981 and serves to commemorate the founding of the Bulgarian Socialist Movement in 1891. Regardless, it still looks a, a lot like the Temple of the Ancients. <laughs> the second correction is that we forgot to note that Twitter user uh, at aka Fruit Snacks as the listener who suggested we talk about the Gizka side quest, which we did in episode 31. Uh, thanks again and sorry for the oversight. So, Knights of the Old Republic, Part 10 The Star Forge and the Battle of Rakava Prime. Last time in the narrative, we finally met the Rakava after crashing on their homeworld. Karth Anasi worked to get the Iban Hawk ready to fly, while Revan met Destiny on the summit of the Temple of the Ancients. There, Revan, Jolie Bindo, and Johanni dueled Bastila Shan, who had fallen to the dark side after prolonged torture. Bastila, seeing Revan's raw power, nearly enticed him to return to the dark side, but it was not to be. Revan held to the light, and Bastila fled back to the Starforge. With the disruptor field deactivated and the Ebon Hawk repaired, Revan and his companions fly from Rakata Prime towards the system sun and the Starfords. The colossal superweapon is operating at 300% capacity and continues to create new ships and assault droids, even as the Sith fleet has moved into position to protect the Starforge. Finally, the Republic fleet drops out of hyperspace and we've entered Endgame. Whoever wins the coming Battle of Rakata Prime will control the galaxy. This is normally the point in any story where we take a step back from the story momentarily to provide you with a bird's eye view of the combatants and their forces during the Jedi Civil War, but frankly, we just don't know. While Star Wars stories always focus on a small group of combatants, reference books typically describe what else was happening in the galaxy at the time. For instance, the Great Sith War was originally told in the Tales of the Jedi comics, but troop movement strategies and ancillary battles were detailed in The Essential Atlas. However, we have no information on what the Republic did while Revan and his companions sought the Star Forge, which could have taken as long as a few months of in-universe time. We do know that the Republic massed every ship they could conceivably fight and coordinated with the remaining Jedi survivors from Dantooine on the upcoming attack, while awaiting the Star Forge's location. At this moment, the situation looks very dire. The Republic is outnumbered, has Bastila's battle meditation working against them, and then there's the Star Forge. Location profile the Star Forge. Took us long enough to get here, huh? The Starforge is the seventh superweapon in our series, and in my personal opinion, the coolest superweapon in Star Wars because it's the only one that doesn't involve uh, just you know jetting around and uh, and shooting up planets. It, you know, it's actually it's a different kind of superweapon. We've they've always got to have one, you know, but but you know. We've spent so much time talking about getting to the Starforge, but haven't said much about the station itself. 
Completed in 30,000 BBY, the Starforge was built with the use of slave, slave labor from many worlds, including Corellia, Coruscant, Dantooine, Duro, Kashyyyk, Manon, Slaherion, and Tatooine. <clears throat> the Starforge is both the technological and cultural apex of the Rakatan civilization, a space station that was part foundry, part superweapon, and all dark side. Like other Rakatan technology, the Starforge was infused with the dark side of the Force and eventually began feeding off the anger and hatred inherent to the Rakata. The superweapon was fast becoming a tool of unprecedented dark side power, even if the Rakata didn't yet fully understand it. Situated directly above the Star Lahon, the Starforge was an enormous gunmetal gray-colored space station with three pillars or fins jutting out vert- vertically from the circular command deck located near the top of the fins. The space station was so large that several capital ships could easily fly between the fins and six to eight Hammerhead-class ships could encircle a single orbital stabilizer. The Starforge was powered by matter drawn continuously from Lihon, and ca- and, which was caught by the three pillars extending downward. Despite being labeled a superweapon, the Starforge itself has little in the way of proprietary defense systems. Turbo laser batteries surrounded each docking bay, but that was about the extent of its offensive capabilities. The idea was that the Starforge could create ships, assault droids, and weapons so quickly that they could be used to defend the Starforge from assault. That's a good plan in theory, but you know. Uh, The Starforge could produce everything needed for its defense, capital ships, assault droids of all kinds, snub fighters, transport ships, blasters, grenades, and even melee weapons. The exact speed of production is never stated, but it's implied that snub fighters come off the line in mere minutes. The perfect superweapon for any burgeoning evil empire. But we wouldn't make such a big deal about the Star Forge if it were a simple foundry. No, the Star Forge was so much more than that and so much worse than even the Rakata imagined. After its construction in 30,000 BBY, the Rakata believed they had created the ultimate weapon to fuel their infinite empire for eternity. As the droid from the Dantooine Star Map Temple, also known as the Overseer, told Revan and Bastila, quote, the Star Forge is the glory of the builders, the apex of their infinite empire. It is a machine of invincible might, a tool of unstoppable conquest. End quote. However, by infusing a superweapon this powerful with the dark side, the Rakata inadvertently built their own destruction, a space station that both fed off their dark nature and further corrupted all who used it. The superweapon was so powerful that all Starforge technology contained internal rebuilding systems. The Rakata attempted to destroy all the star maps, but the computer, droids, and maps rebuilt themselves over time. Though their data was corrupted and incomplete by the time of their discovery by Revan and Malik in 3960, in their original state, any original star map would have provided the location to the Starforge, but their incomplete nature meant we had to find five of them. Shortly after the Star Forge was completed, the Rakatan Civil War began. While the mysterious plague that blinded the Rakata to the force was the deal breaker, the Civil War was fueled by the dark side nature of the Star Forge and it weakened the Infinite Empire significantly. After the plague spread to the entire species and widespread slave rebellions killed off all the Rakata in the galaxy, their inferior remnant was confined to Rakata Prime. However, the Starforge was not yet finished with its creators, fueling the few remaining Rakata who could faintly touch the force toward the dark side. In the final battle of the Rakatan Civil War, circa 25,200, those four sensitive Rakatans waged a war of annihilation against one another and their homeworld from their remaining capital ships. The Starforge completed the destruction of its creators and then lay dormant, for 21,244 years. In 3959, Darth's Revan and Malik discovered the Starforge and Rakata Prime after piecing together navigational data from five star maps. 
On the command deck, Darth Revan declared his new Sith Empire in the lineage of Frida Nad, Exarkun, and Naga Sadao. Adding new ships from the Starforge to the Republic fleet they'd stolen, the Dark Lords created a seemingly infinite Sith fleet. Revan was careful to never push the Starforge past its limits as he saw that it began to control those who gave in to its power. Dark Malak, however, had no such compunctions and pushed the Starforge past its technical limits by allowing the space station to feed on his inner dark side. Then Malak found one final horrific use for the ancient superweapon. This one using captured Jedi from the Sith attack on Dantooine. He incorporated eight Jedi into the Starforge itself, placing them in suspended stasis that kept their near their nearly lifeless bodies from becoming one with the Force. Malik had learned how to use the dark side power of the Starforge to channel the Force, uh, the Force of the captured Jedi, to strengthen his own connection to the Force. In Knights of the Old Republic, this manifests itself as Malik being a lightsaber sponge and refilling and refilling his health on the Jedi during the duel with Revan. The Jedi who are drained by Malak or killed by Revan appear to simply die without becoming one with the Force. Revan may alternately spare them, allowing them to become one with the Force after their imprisonment. After its destruction, the Starforge played a minor role in a side quest involving Revan and some Angri slaves he freed. On a lower level, on a lower level of Nar Shaddaa, Revan gave the Angri a small piece of the Starforge he had taken when he was there the first time. They called it the Infinite Engine because the tiny fragment began to replicate and showed some small degree of adaptability or semi-sentience by beginning to take on the image of the Angri. Revan told them to sacrifice dead bodies and consecrate their newborns before the infinite engine, and it, in turn, provided sustenance and protection from their enemies. Don't hold it against us. The Old Republic MMO is is a little weird. So, yeah. Now, the, sage is, the stage is set for the Battle of Arcata Prime. As the Ebon Hawk speeds out of the planet's orbit... Karth is able to receive an urgent transmission from Republic Fleet Admiral Forn Dodana, descendant of the rebel leader from ancestor of the rebel leader from the original trilogy films, Jan Dodana. Admiral Dodana is joined by Jedi Master Vandar Toker on the bridge of her flagship to oversee the Republic's attack on the Starforge. Unfortunately, Dodana and Tokar can each see the battle already turning against them as the Sith fighters and capital ships have almost pretty natural timing to avoid Republic attacks. Onasi explains Bastila's fall to the dark side and that the Republic must press forward with an attack because the Starforge will create a never-ending army if left operational. It's a battle to decide the fate of the galaxy between two monstrous fleets and one fully operational battle station. You know, like the Battle of Endor in Return of the Jedi. Okay, it's not really a battle station, but it worked better for the reference, so we're just going to roll with it. Admiral Dodana, Master Toker, Karth, and Revan decide that the Republic must press forward into the teeth of the Sith fleet to keep them occupied while the Ebon Hawk, um, with the Ebon Hawk, while the Ebon Hawk drops Revan and two companions off at one of the Starforge docking bays. Revan must neutralize Bastila's battle meditation, or the Sith fleet will remain invincible and destroy the last naval defense of the Republic. With Bastila distracted, the Republic can use their armada of hammerhead cruisers to target the Star Forge's orbital stabilizers and hopefully blow it out of the sky. The prodigal Jedi Knight must also duel his former Sith apprentice, Darth Malak, on the bridge of the Star Forge. The Republic has a chance, but those are still some pretty long odds. Revan can choose any companions of the nine remaining, but the dark side Revan must choose Bastila and one of the other four available. The Ebon Hawk will wait there until Revan's, mas- Revan's mission is complete. Master Toker has assigned four ships full of every Jedi they could scrape together to aid Revan and the Ebon Hawk in their infiltration. A cutscene begins with the Ebon Hawk and those four Jedi escort ships flying toward the Starforge docking bays with turbo laser fire, taking out two of the Jedi ships.
If Revan has fallen to the dark side, Bastila takes Karth's place and a similar set of events play out, with Dodonna agreeing to assault the Sith and to care lending the Jedi. Meanwhile, if Revan has completed all dialogue checks with Candras Ordo and done the companion loyalty mission with Jagi on Tatooine, the Mandalorian mercenary will have a brief dialogue with Revan, regardless of his light-dark alignment. Candrus admits that working with Revan has changed him for the better, given him a true purpose in life. Uh, he's not ready to give up a life of fighting, but says, quote, I'm your man to the end, whatever path you take, end quote. It's a brief and emotional moment where Ordo let down his barriers and told Revan how he truly felt. Deep inside the Mandalorian mercenary, who looks like uh, actor Ron Perlman, who worked for Davit Kang, there lurked a Mandalorian mercenary who looks like actor Ron Perlman with a heart of gold. It's honestly surprising it took us this long to make a reference to the fact that he looks like Ron Perlman, if, if you know, for being really honest about everything. The Evan Hawk docks and Revan chooses Carthanassi and Jilly Bindo as companions as he exits the ship. A team of Jedi led by a human female await. This Jedi Knight says her team will lend support, says she will lead her team in to defend against dark Jedi and take some heat off Revan's group. These Jedi are literally unkillable, so we'll let them handle the dirty work here. There will be plenty of dark Jedi to dismember further on. The companions take the elevator up to deck one and find a long tunnel two Jedi followed to stand guard by the elevators so the Sith can't block the escape route, which is good thinking. The deck one tunnel is also the point when Zalbar makes his final, his fatal last stand against a dark side Revan who forced him to kill Mission on the beach on Rakata Prime. Big Z realized his life debt wasn't worth such, wasn't worth following such a villain and died trying to avenge Mission after he was made to kill her against his will. At the end of the tunnel, Revan should save the game because it's the last time he can return to the Ebon Hawk in Knights of the Old Republic. This is our version of Crossing the Rubicon, so think of some inspiring words someone once told you because it's time to go find our manic Jedi dream girl, confess our love, and redeem her from the dark side. Oh, and we have to kill that metal-jawed bastard, too. Another cutscene plays with a Sith Master, who looks an awful lot like Darth Bandon's character model without the bad facial hair, informing Darth Malak of a Jedi strike team that had successfully infiltrated the Starforge. Malak orders the Starforge's army of battle droids to assault the Jedi, even though the Sith Master believes they will be no match for those Jedi. Nevertheless, Malak's orders are carried out and the companions push through waves of assault droids. The Sith Master is then shown informing a battle droid of the plan. We won't waste much time belaboring the fights with these battle droids, but just know they become so much scrap like every other droid in Revan's path thus far. The interior of the Starforge is a gargantuan series of tunnels, ramps, and blast doors dimly lit from below. It's an ominous, foreboding structure both inside and out. As the companions travel deeper and down into another long hallway, another cutscene begins showing a duel between three Jedi from the Strike Team and three Dark Jedi. Unfortunately, the Jedi are very killable now and each dies before the cutscene ends, but that still doesn't bode well for the trio of Dark Jedi because they die like everything else in Revan's way. Revan, Jolie, and Karth cut them down and move toward deck two. Obviously, there are at least five more Dark Jedi to face down before we get there because the Star Forge is essentially a Star Wars version of the Indonesian films The Raid and The Raid to Bernadal, where the Jedi have to fight their way through narrow corridors and ascend each level to meet their destiny. Moving on to Deck 2, a new cutscene begins showing Darth Malak and the Sith Master from earlier. The Star Forge's assault droids failed Malak's test, but the Sith has additional information now. It's not just some ragtag group of D-list unnamed Jedi, it's also Revan and his companions. Now Darth Malak understands that the Force is pushing him toward a final confrontation with his old master and friend. So he sends out every available warrior left. Sith troopers, Sith officers, Dark Jedi, and every other associated Sith who is able to hold a blunt object is ordered to delay Revan. 
Darth Malak wants to test the full capacity of the Star Forge's power, and he needs time to prepare. With all the enemies Revan kills on the Star Forge, it's a wonder the place isn't chock full of heaps of severed limbs and heads. Really, the only thing Knights of the Old Republic is missing is a ton of severed limbs from all these lightsabers, but that's a small complaint. Uh, okay, hear us out. An arm-chopping minigame on the Star Forge. Like, you wouldn't spend 20 hours playing that. Come on. Uh, all the exits from Deck 1 are blocked by enemies who each die to Revan's lights, lightsabers, Jolie's green lightsaber, or Anassi's twin blasters. You can imagine any companion in these situations unless they are required by the game, like Basilis shortly, as the companions follow the narrow tunnels toward the elevator to the command center, they encounter a computer room to deactivate the multiple turrets that guard the exit. You can destroy them, but that's time consuming. And if Revan doesn't go to the computer room quickly enough, enemies reappear. Revan makes his way down the final tunnel and takes the elevator up to the command center and a date with destiny. As we ascend, the game jumps to a cutscene between Darth Malak and Darth Bastila. She didn't get that name, we're just assuming here. Shan is concerned that the interruption of her battle meditation may allow the Republic and Jedi forces to get the upper hand, but Malak is unconcerned. Darth Malak informs his new Sith apprentice that Revan is on the Starforge and that the Force is drawing them together again for a final confrontation. Shan is visibly shaken but is consoled by her Sith master who says she can prove herself to be a worthy apprentice by defeating Revan. Bastila is ordered to continue her battle meditation from the command center under a massive hologram that showed a real-time view of the outside of the Starforge as, as well as navigational and fleet data. Darth Malak assures Bastila that she will prevail by feeding upon the dark side power of the Starforge and then departs. Malak isn't truly concerned as he reveals an exposition that he just needs Bastila to delay Revan a little longer to, fo to be fully prepared. Malak knows writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. If Revan fell to the dark side and is accompanied by Bastila, the cutscene will reveal Darth Malak speaking with his three most powerful dark Jedi, each wearing a different color robe. Malak will tell the trio to wait and then that the one who kills Revan and Bastila will be his new apprentice. While they wait, Darth Malak gives the same exposition about using his troops as a delay tactic. As our light side Revan moves through the command center hallways, he and his companions encounter more red armored Sith elite troopers and heavy troopers and a few more dark Jedi. All are slain in turn and the group moves toward the command center door, which is guarded by three more dark Jedi, but each of these must be killed before the door can be opened. The Dark Jedi are slain in standard fashion, and the command center door opens to reveal Bastila standing before the hologram of the Star Forge. Then, Revan gets separated from his companions, forcing him to confront Chan alone. Because Revan and Bastila kissed on the Iban Hawk, the romance is still available at this time. Much like the judges on Manan, responses to Bastila net Revan points toward her redemption. A hundred points are needed to redeem Bastila, while a male Revan who has Romance Shan can net up to 270 points. It's cold to reduce human emotions to mathematical equations, but it's a video game. They need some sort of mechanic for it. If Revan fails to get a hundred points, which is kind of difficult to do, honestly, then he will be forced to kill Bastila. She will be lost to the dark side. In this case, Revan still completed his objective of removing Bastila's battle meditation, that's cold consolation in comparison to her death. Instead, the canonical playthrough calls for romance, and so we must deliver on that promise. You'll recall that Revan and Bastila have been through a lot together on this journey. Bastila has reconciled with her mother, Hel Helena, with Revan's aid, and their strong force bond drew them closer, and the mutual attraction flourished. They flirted on the Iban Hawk. But after finding two star maps, passing eight dialogue checks, and helping out with Helena, Bastila will ask to speak to Revan privately. Revan can deny Bastila by saying that starship won't fly, which is just a tremendous rejection line. 
Instead, Revan joined Bastil in the privacy of the empty crew quarters to talk. Bastil confesses that their feelings for one another are now also a part of their force bond and shares a passionate kiss with Revan. However, Shan pulled away because she was worried that her feelings for Revan would compromise the mission and that attachment violated the Jedi Code. Things were awkward for the couple thereafter, and they didn't speak again until their capture by the Leviathan. Revan's feelings were complicated by the revelation of his old identity and the fact that Bastila was in on the whole thing. He was hurt, but then Shan sacrificed herself to save both Revan and Karth from Darth Malak, and the two couldn't continue their dialogue until they met on the Temple of the Ancients. Bastila had fallen to the dark side under Darth Malak's torture, and she dueled Revan, Jahani, and Jolie on the Temple Summit. Revan tried desperately to redeem Bastila, eventually appealing to the love they both felt above their force bond. Shan almost relented, but fled back to her Sith Master instead. Finally, aboard the Starforge, Revan has one final chance to redeem Bastila from the dark side through the power of their love. The first duel of the of the Starforge begins after the prodigal Jedi earns his first points by saying he will never give up on Bastila, and then the couple came to lightsaber blows. Once Bastila is reduced to half health, dialogue begins again. Bastila claims that the dark side gives her unprecedented power, while Revan counters by saying the Sith commit endless cycles, commit to endless cycles of violence. Before battle resumes, Bastila calls on the dark side, fueled by the Starforge, to refill her health. It's not enough as Darth Revan once again gets the better of Bastila, inflicting damage until another dialogue appears. Revan begins to to plead on their feelings for one another and goads Bastila, telling her to strike him down in anger, if she can. He then says that they used to mean something to one another and that has to count for something now, damn it. The battle resumes and Revan damages Shan more until the final dialogue begins. Bastila, visibly injured, is shocked that her dark side powers, augmented by the Starforge, were no match for Revan and the light side. Shan then offers herself up, asking Revan to do the honorable thing and kill her. Revan now has the option to kill Bastila, but why? She was tortured into turning to the dark side, and points are easy enough to get to redeem her, so killing just seems lazy. Sure, Bastila thinks she can't be redeemed, but so do all the rest, including Revan at one point. Revan chooses option B. Redemption. He says he could never kill Bastila and begs her to return to the light, but she is overcome with self-pity and shame for her actions and again begs to be mercy killed. Revan persists, imploring his girlfriend to reject the dark side as he had once done. Bastila says she isn't strong enough, so Revan offers himself up through their bond to give Shan the strength to reject the dark side. Bastila agrees saying that Revan was always stronger and that she was ashamed of her feelings earlier due to the conservative Jedi teachings on sex and relationships. Using the bond, Bastila feels her strength returning in the Force, and Revan asks her again to renounce the dark side and be free from her sins. Bastila is again unsure, though, saying that she was supposed to protect Revan, not fall to the dark side herself. She became the very thing she sought to destroy. Revan says that Bastila did protect him, and she's the only reason he's alive in the first damned place. Finally, Revan implores his once and future queen, saying, quote, Look into your heart, Bastila, you will find the light. End quote. Finally, Shan sees reason and admits that a flicker of the light still burns within her, with Revan opening himself fully confessing his love for Bastila. This was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back as Shan admits her love for Revan and stating that once he defeats Malak, he will have, quote, gone from being the Sith Lord himself to the savior of the galaxy, end quote. Bastila then confesses her love for Revan, saying she's not afraid to love anymore and feels safe in Revan's love too. Bastila knows that Darth Malak awaits Revan, but she can't go on and face him for fear of turning to Darkseid, so she will continue her battle meditation, but this time aid the Republic fleet, 
a turning point in the major space battle ensuing outside. As Revan moves toward destiny in the final confrontation, Bastila calls out to him, Good luck, my love, and may the Force be with you. There's another cutscene, this time showing the battle-changing aspects of Bastila's powerful battle meditation. In the command center, Bastila crosses her legs and begins to meditate, deeply calling on the Force to aid the thousands of Republic troops and Jedi fighting outside the Starforge. Small particle effects indicating her use of the Force float upward from Bastila, and we turn to the battle in space. Outside, the Battle of Ricotta Prime is a massive shooting gallery with hundreds or thousands of ships fighting one another. Formations of Republic and Sith starfighters faced off or made flanking runs against larger capital ships. It's a truly spectacular display. Despite their best efforts, however, the Republic is near defeat. They've got plenty of ships and the Republic Navy is skilled, but the Starforge can produce new ships just as quickly as the Republic blasts them. It looks like this is the end for the Republic as its Navy makes its last stand in 3956 above a nameless world. But all is not lost just yet. From the bridge of a hammerhead cruiser, Admiral Dodonna and Master Tokare see the opening they need and send Green Squadron into a small crack in the Sith lines. The diminutive Jedi of Yoda species can now feel Bastila's battle meditation working in their favor as Republic attacks become more focused and their resolve is strengthened. Sith fighters no longer use coordinated attack patterns and the Sith blockade of the Starforge begins to break under Republic pressure. With Green Squadron pouring in, the small breach becomes a gaping hole. Dodonna sees her chance to end the Battle of Ricotta Prime and takes it. She orders all Republic fighters to continue their attack runs on all Sith ships while her capital ships move in to try and destroy the Starforge. Although the cutscene doesn't show it, we have no doubt that Foreign Dodonna transmitted some stirring speech to her fighters via comm, something like, you know, once more into the breach, or now for ruin, now for wrath, now for ruin, and the Red Dawn. The final Republic charge commences against the Starforge. One way or the other, this is the moment that will decide the fate of the galaxy. Before Revan and Malik's final confrontation, Let's take a step back to talk about Battle Meditation, a plot device and force power that drives much of the story of Knights of the Old Republic. Though the force power was first described by Grand Admiral Thrawn in Timothy Zahn's 1991 expanded universe novel, Heir to the Empire, KOTOR is the first time that the term Battle Meditation is used. We've been talking about it since Tales of the Jedi and usually only mention it in passing, so we're going to try and give you a better idea of just what battle meditation is and why it's so powerful. Whereas most force powers were micro in nature, meaning they could only affect the user and those in the surrounding area, battle meditation is one of the few macro force uses that can affect thousands or even millions of beings at once. The force user practicing battle meditation could weaken the battle prowess of their enemies while simultaneously strengthening it within their allies. As Master Arkajet explained it, quote, half of every conflict is the will to win, end quote. What does all that Star Wars nonsense mean in practice? Judging from the depictions of battle meditation throughout the Legends timeline, it means a lot. Formations have fewer gaps, soldiers are more confident, they fly better, their shots are more accurate. In short, it's the ultimate X-factor in any battle, and it makes sense why Darth Malak would pursue Bastila Shan with such zeal. However, Shan's manifestation of battle meditation was slightly different than others. Whereas most battle pr- meditation practitioners like Nomi Sunrider, Odin Ur, the Jedi Exile, and even Emperor Palpatine could utilize the ability passively while participating in the battle, Bastila had to concentrate deeply. Sean couldn't fight in the battle and broadcast battle meditation to others at the same time. It appears to simply be differences in how the ability manifested itself within her and how she adopted its use. In fact, Bastila's strength with battle meditation almost single-handedly staved off annihilation for the Republic after the outset of the Jedi Civil War in 3958. During the Battle of Ricotta Prime, Bastila once again saved the Republic from annihilation, 
leaving Revan to meet Darth Malak and his destiny alone. After redeeming Bastila and finding love in a hopeless place, Revan moves away from the command center down a long walkway toward the elevator to the viewing platform. Revan wields two lightsabers, one red and one purple, and wears the Starforge robes. The lightsabers are red and purple because Revan truly stands apart between the light and dark. You see the, sim- the symbolism we're going for here. He uses two lightsabers because that's the coolest and obviously the best way to go, according to me anyway. Revan approaches a door to find Malak force-choking two Jedi before using force lightning to kill one and throwing his lightsaber to kill the other. Malak then monologues about how he tires of this game, he's more powerful than ever, blah blah blah. Revan proclaims that he is once again a servant of the light and even offers redemption to Malak, but this duel won't be solved by words or admissions of guilt. Unfortunately, the duel also won't happen yet because Malak closes the door to retreat to the viewing platform. At that moment, six battle droids that were built by the Starforge during the duration of the dialogue appear and surround Revan. The droids are scrapped easily and Revan opens the door, proceeding toward the elevator up to the viewing platform. A massive circular room with large windows allows Revan and Malak to view the continuing battle outside. The platform has two levels with ramps connecting them, each holding some some of Malak's Jedi prisoners who are being used to feed the dark side and power the Starforge further. The eight the eight Jedi Malak has imprisoned, hang limp in electrified cages, their bodies barely clinging to life, but unable to become one with the Force due to their torture. The final battle between Master and Apprentice occurs here. Fans are somewhat divided, with some feeling that Darth Malak is a difficult boss uh, because he's a damaged sponge and can recharge his uh health points from the Jedi. Other fans say the battle isn't really tough, especially if you spam a bunch of stimulants beforehand. This is also the point where the player can enter the console command that turns Malak into a Twi'lek dancer, and the game ends like that. We're not going to end there, but we did have to mention that dancing Twi'lek, Malak cheat at least once. Everything in Knights of the Old Republic has led to this moment. Even, I suppose, the dancing Twi'lek cheat. Revan against Darth Malak, dueling to the death on the <laughs> Star Forge. Formerly best friends and brothers in arms who fell to the dark side together, they will face off for the final time with the fate of the galaxy on the line. Darth Malak, the Sith Magnus, is an imposing figure. He's taller than Revan and has 38 defense, the second highest defense rating in the game. Despite all our jokes about Malak wearing red lycra bodysuits and calling it armor, it apparently does provide excellent defense while also showing off his physique. Stupid, sexy Malak. The bigger problem with Malak is his attack, which is the highest in the game. During his time with other Jedi, Malak was considered one of the foremost lightsaber duelists in the Order, and it seems his skills haven't dulled since joining the dark side. Malak wields a single dual-use red lightsaber, which is longer than the typical lightsaber and allows for more powerful strikes. He also has a penchant for using force lightning and cloaking himself in force immunity to lessen the impact of Revan's force abilities. Malak has more monologuing to do before the duel commences, commending Revan on being stronger than he ever was as Dark Lord. Surprisingly, Darth Malak finally stumbles upon a really apt description of Revan, saying, quote, Savior, conqueror, hero, villain, you are all things, Revan, and yet you are nothing. In the end, you belong to neither the light nor the darkness. You will forever stand alone, end quote. Finally, the war of words ends and the duel begins. Lightsabers clash and the force lightning flies as Malak relentlessly pursues Revan with power attacks. Revan eventually gets the upper hand and is able to decrease Malak's health enough to cue the first break in the fighting. Malak moves toward one of the eight imprisoned Jedi and drains their life force to replenish his own health. Darth Malak has been made effectively immortal by giving into the power of the Starforge. 
He mocks Revan for not fully exploring its capabilities, and the duel continues. Revan can now free the remaining imprisoned Jedi, shortening the duel considerably. By using Force Breach or Lightsaber Throw, Revan can break the prisoners free, allowing them to become one with the Force. Sadly, there's no helping the first Jedi who could not become one with the Force after Malak's drain. Revan can also kill the Jedi, but that seems pointless, especially since our Force Points refill after every Jedi freed. Revan can also use the Drain Life ability on them to refill both health and and force points, but the imprisoned Jedi cannot then become one of the force. Good boy Revan obviously chooses to allow the other seven Jedi to become one of the force, frustrating Darth Malak's attempts at immortality and making me tired of saying the phrase, become one of the force. Once the remaining Jedi are free, it is, it's a for, it's a fight to the death. God, I can't even stop saying it. No more tricks, no more health refills. We're using lofty rhetoric to describe the fight here, but you probably remember placing mines all across the viewing platform and running Malik through them. The player can set up 15 mines at once, which is enough to kill Malik without ever using offensive powers against him. This is a very common strategy and one we wholeheartedly recommend. Whether by mine, lightsaber, or force lightning, Darth Malak's health is eventually whittled down until one final lightsaber strike to the gut leaves him dying on the viewing platform. He can see his fleet in disarray, his Sith Empire crumbling, and feel the cold embrace of death encroaching. Malik's gruff electronic voice echoes as he laments his own demise at the hands of his former master. Revan the Redeemer asked Malik to come back to the light, but it was not to be. Malik accepted the light was just as strong as the dark, and his role in falling to the dark side, despite being introduced to it by Revan in the first place. Oh, irony of ironies. Malik admits that he always wanted to be master of the galaxy and was always jealous of Revan's leadership. With no time left, Malik inadvertently gave his own befitting epitaph. Quote, and in the end, as the darkness takes me, I am nothing, end quote. Darth Malak had been the ruler of the Sith Empire for about a year when he died on the Star Forge in 3956. With Malak dead, there's little time to lose because the Republic will begin the destruction of the Star Forge at any moment. Moving to the hangar, Revan meets Karth and Nasty and Bastila, who are waiting by the Ebon Hawk. The rest of the companions are safely on board after doing God knows what while we were off fighting Malak. Bastila's battle meditation allowed the Republic to totally break the Sith fleet, and capital ships are inbound to destroy the station's orbital stabilizers, which, as you might have guessed, keep it afloat in space. Revan informs Karth and Bastila that Malak is dead, and they all agree to celebrate after they flee the dying superweapon. As the trio boards the Ebon Hawk, we see the final moment of the Battle of Arcata Prime play out. The Sith fleet has been decimated, and the Star Forge stands unguarded. Hammerhead cruisers surrounded the orbital stabilizers situated on top of the circular command center and destroyed them with turbolaser fire. With the stabilizers destroyed, the Star Forge began to slowly descend into the Star Lahon, and Admiral Dodonna pulled all ships back to a minimum safe distance. Their joy was evident, but also tempered by the seeming loss of the Ebon Hawk and her crew. Pieces of the Star Forge fell to Rakata Prime, but most fell into the star, and the ancient space station exploded as it fell. At the very last moment, the Ebon Hawk flew away to safety without looking at the really cool explosion behind them. Admiral Dodonna raises Karth on the comms, and the companions fly down to Rakata Prime to begin the big victory party. At the base of the Temple of the Ancients, Republic soldiers and officers gather for a medal ceremony, just like a new hope. Revan and each of his companions receive the Cross of Glory, the Republic's highest honor, and are hailed as saviors of the Republic. Master Toker congratulates Revan on his redemption, and then gives us some parting words, quote, For one day you may be called upon yet again to defend the glory of the Republic against the tyranny of the dark side, for this is the destiny of the Jedi. End quote. The last scene in Knights of the Old Republic is a group photo of all the companions having just saved 
the universe. And yet we still don't have an answer for the biggest mystery of Knights of the Old Republic, which is why does Master Tokare talk like that and Yoda talks the way Yoda does? Is it just a thing Yoda does? Like, you know, I don't, I don't know. Is it, is it just a bit like he just been doing this for 800 years to laugh at people? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, we, we don't have an answer really. So, um, unless you thought that the, the episode was going to end there, we have everyone's favorite section to go. Side quest, the redemption of Revan versus the redemption of Kylo Ren. So that's it. Now to the Old Republic is finally over, and now we're left to pin a fitting conclusion for the most monumental Star Wars legend story. But there's no way to do that, and it's not our style anyway, so we're going to do one more side quest. This one suggested by listener and friend of the pod at LDrinkH2O on Twitter. She asked us to compare and contrast Revan's redemption in Knights of the Old Republic with the possible redemption of Kylo Ren in Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Whereas Revan is almost universally beloved as a character and his redemption a celebrated event completing the arc of the prodigal Jedi Knight who was once the bane of the Jedi and then their savior. Conversely, the possible, redemption, the possible redemption of Kylo Ren is one of the most hotly contested subjects within the Star Wars fandom. That's just a terribly silly sentence to write. Ren is either written off as a lost cause who spurned too many chances at redemption or a tragic figure who could only be redeemed by some equally tragic and heroic death. The crux of these arguments being that Kylo Ren can't ever truly atone for his acts of evil because he's done too much and gone too far. But is that really accurate? Why do we care so deeply about some characters truly redeeming themselves, whatever that actually means, while others are internalized and just accepted? What does all this really say about Star Wars? Is the concept of redemption in Star Wars even valuable in the real world? Will we be able to use this segment to succinctly tie up Knights of the Old Republic and Revan in a nice little bow while, bow while also incorporating upcoming canon content? Let's find out. We'll start by comparing the crimes of Revan and Kylo Ren, then talk about redemption in Star Wars generally, and finally discuss Revan's redemption in Knights of the Old Republic as a means of wrapping this all up nicely. It's easy to forget Revan's crimes, given the fact that our entire series on Knights of the Old Republic has focused on the canonical good boy. But let's not mince words. Revan is a war criminal, is a monster, and at least partially responsible for the near-total destruction of the Jedi Order. Indeed, Revan's crimes began long before he fell to the dark side. After being named Supreme Commander of Republic Forces in the Mandalorian Wars, Revan sacrificed civilians in innocent worlds to defeat the Mandalorians. From 3962 through 3960, Revan waged a brutal campaign, driving the Mandalorians back into the Outer Rim, culminating in his greatest atrocity at the Battle of Malachor V. There, in 3960, Revan unleashed the Mass Shadow Generator, a superweapon that killed millions and fractured Malachor V to its core. While the superweapon's activation did end the Mandalorian Wars, it also constituted a genocide against the Mandalorians, ending their civilization for nearly 4,700 years. Additionally, the Mass Shadow Generator killed tens of thousands of Republic soldiers and Jedi Knights, not as collateral damage, but as a calculated ploy by Revan to diminish his enemies in a war of attrition. Revan sacrificed countless allies to not only end one war, but also bend the remainder of the Republic and the Jedi to his will. He had already fallen to the dark side. After stealing what remained of the Republic fleet, finding the Starforge, and reconstituting the Sith Empire, Darth Revan instigated the Jedi Civil War in 3958. As Dark Lord of the Sith, Revan was responsible for numerous atrocities, including the destruction of Telos IV, even if he disagreed with, Mand with Malak's methods somewhat. Revan's Sith Empire unleashed the Zergit Corporation on the galaxy by giving them an imperial trade monopoly, which caused the enslavement of millions, maybe billions. 
He also cut his best friend's jaw off. We won't ever argue with Malik shutting up, but it's still pretty fucked up to slice off your best buddy's mandible. Even after he was captured by Bastlin, mind-wiped by the Jedi Council, the events Revan set in motion continued to spiral out of control. The Jedi Civil War eventually killed billions, and the resulting Sith Civil War that, that followed left less than 10 active Jedi in the galaxy. Meanwhile, in the, new, in the new canon, we have far fewer references to the crimes of Kylo Ren, but they're still pretty bad. Sometime around 29 ABY, that's after the Battle of Yevon, Ben Solo appears to have burned down Luke Skywalker's new Jedi Order, killing some number of Jedi and young, younglings in the process. This act effectively destroyed the Jedi Order. Luke was rebuilding. Kylo Ren then served as Snoke's apprentice and was responsible for hunting possible Jedi, finding his uncle's whereabouts, and generally killing a bunch of civilians. In 34 ABY, he oversaw the use of Starkiller Base against the New Republic, causing the Hosnian Cataclysm and the deaths of probably trillions. That only occurred after test firings had already destroyed planets in other systems. He tortured Rey, continued the destruction of the Resistance after becoming Supreme Leader, and has already declined numerous chances to be redeemed. Admittedly, the crimes of Kylo Ren seem to pale in comparison to those of Revan, but that's probably due to a lack of additional source material. Revan did debut in 2003, while Kylo Ren only debuted in 2015. So how do we square this circle? Star Wars is, at its core, a series of kid stories about an eternal struggle between good and evil, but these bad people are allowed to go to Force Heaven despite being very bad. The truth is, the redemptions in Star Wars are not akin to how we as a society view redemption. In our world, we don't immediately forgive despotic, tyrannical war criminals just because they step back from power and have a supposed change of heart and take up painting. At least... We shouldn't do that. At the very least, we would like to see our war criminals punished in some meaningful way, maybe see some contrition. Many wouldn't be opposed to the death penalty for such people. Some might just settle for not having them in public life all the time again. But that's not how it's treated in Star Wars. Darth Vader didn't wander the galaxy for decades righting wrongs and undoing all the pain he caused. No, he's responsible for trillions of deaths, choked his pregnant wife, killed an entire temple full of Jedi children, and was the Emperor's unassailable iron fist of fascism and autocracy for 23 years. Yet all of it was wiped away, at least according to the Force, when Vader finally decided to throw the only person in the galaxy worse than him down a power conduit. Further examples support how this plays out. Listen, it's, you know, I can't help it. These things are, <laughs> these things are timely. Um, but Kelsey's absolutely right. Don't, don't, don't allow war criminals out in public in real life. That's, that's not how things should, should work. Ulit Keldroma, meanwhile, teamed with Exar Kun to drag the galaxy into the Great Sith War, a conflict that saw the destruction of the Jedi library, library world Asus and devastated almost one fourth of the known galaxy. In the end, Ulik killed his brother, saw the error of his ways, and helped the Jedi locate and destroy Exar Kun to end the Great Sith War. That was after being blinded to the Force, but that wasn't so much a punishment as Nomi Sunrider, Nomi Sunrider underestimating her own strength and the anger she felt against Ulik, her former lover. Keldroma spent 10 years roaming the galaxies in exile until the Force brought Vima Sunrider to him and he found redemption through training Nomi's daughter. Despite his inability to touch the Force, Ulik trained Vima and helped her build her first lightsaber. After being confronted by Nomi, Keldroma accepted what he had done and found peace within himself. Moments before his death, Ulik made one final selfless act by helping the Cathar Jedi Silvar stay with the light. Silvar, who wanted Ulik to die for his crimes during the Sith War, nearly struck the former Jedi down but refrained. Ulik was killed seconds later by 
a pilot looking for the glory of killing an old war criminal. As he died, Ulick became one with the forest despite his many sins and being blinded to the forest for a decade at that point. Though Keldroma did take the path of exile, that was not an act of, an ato- of atonement, it was his inability to face his past. In order to be redeemed, Ulick had to face up to the pain and suffering he had caused, perform an act of selflessness, Jesus, an act of selflessness and help another Jedi come back to the light. The redemption of Kip Duran in 11 ABY, after the Battle of Yavin, also seems instructive. After being possessed by the spirit of Exar Kun, Duran used the Sun Crusher super weapon to destroy the Cauldron Nebula and Karada system, killing countless individuals in the process. Duran was even prepared to nuke another system in the Deep Core, but Kun's spear was defeated and his hold over the Jedi was removed. Kip willingly surrendered to the New Republic for punishment, but instead of executing him for his many crimes, Mon Mothma turned Duran over to Luke Skywalker and his new Jedi Order. Skywalker welcomed his prodigal student back into the fold after probing his mind for hints of the dark side. In fact, Duran's only required public penance for his crimes was to personally throw the Sun Crusher into the heart of a burning star, destroying it forever. That's it. Admittedly, Duran blamed himself for his actions for the rest of his life and tried to make amends, but he still served the new Jedi Order, for the next 30 years after killing a few billion people. Regardless of how the galaxy viewed Duran, the Force forgave him and that appears to be the overriding factor here. Luke could feel Duran's change was true through the Force and allowed his continued service. Gip's devotion to the Light was so great he became one of Luke's brightest pupils and eventually a Jedi Master. This redemption is notably different from others because while Duran did go on living the galaxy after his bad acts, he was literally possessed by a Sith demon. The point of each of the example each of these examples being if you're expecting a Star Wars story to force its main villain to don sackcloth and ashes and wander the galaxy as a destitute exile in order to attain redemption, you're probably going to be sorely disappointed. Redemption in Star Wars uh, appears to mirror redemption as portrayed in the Christian Bible and espoused by many Christian denominations. And I'm, I, I wrote this part, I'm specifically talking about uh, Christianity, because I'm that's what I'm most familiar with. I know that there are other religious faiths that uh, practice similar redemption narratives. I am just, you know, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with them as, uh, you know, what I was taught growing up. So, you know, just wanted to get that out there. This, uh, you know, back to back to what we're discussing. This is not an outward manifestation, but an inward, almost spiritual decision. Though there are obviously hundreds of Christian redemption traditions, they seem to mostly follow a generalized pattern wherein the sinner makes a completely internalized personal decision to accept God after confronting their sins and prostrating themselves before their God to ask forgiveness. Certain sects sects require an additional outward sign such as baptism, But that is by no means universal. Humanity might not believe, much less accept the sinner's atonement and penitence, but God does, and that's what matters. Indeed, turning from the dark side back to the light is treated as becoming a whole new person, or at least the same person you were from before you you went to the dark side. In the same way that the sinner Saul began going by Paul after his conversion on the road to Damascus, evil force users can revert. Uh, Judging by the example of Darth Vader, this is how redemption works with the Force 2. Vader was a child-murdering, Gestapo-leading, planet-killing fascist for for two full decades. But in his last moments, he saw the error of his ways through the love he had for his son and killed the Emperor. One out 
his son and daughters, his son and daughter, excuse me, one outward act after his inward atonement caused the monstrosity Darth Vader to revert to his younger self and be welcomed into Force Heaven. No longer Vader, once more Anakin, of course, his immediate death obviated any questions on further atonement, so that doesn't seem like a requirement. Revan's Redemption is quite unlike the others in many ways. First, Revan is one of the few characters to be redeemed and go on to live in the galaxy for some time. Kip Duran is an obvious example, but he was also possessed by the demon ghost of Exar Kun, so we'll move on. As both Malak and Bastillon noted, Revan has worn every mantle in the galaxy, and yet he was redeemed. The worst of the Dark Lords, the one before whom all others trembled, atoned for his sins and was reborn in the Force. 2,500 years from now, Darth Bane will find Darth Revan's holocron buried deep within the Temple of the Ancient and use Revan's dark knowledge to create his own Rule of Two. Darth Revan rejuvenated the Sith after their extinction under Exar Kun, and he provided the template for Darth Bane to use to resurrect the Sith once again. The guy who did all of that, who left behind those blueprints, was not only redeemed, but he went on to redeem numerous Sith, including Bastila Shan. Revan killed Darth Malak in single combat and then settled into a normal life for some time, before going on another adventure and being a vital component of the Old Republic MMO. Revan's Redemption is the sum total of the player's actions during Knights of the Old Republic, and it's one of our favorite stories. So why shouldn't the sum total of the sequel trilogy be the redemption of Kylo Ren? Perhaps in yet another nod to Knights of the Old Republic, Ren realizes his folly and helps redeem the dark ray shown in the latest Episode Nine trailer. Maybe love and an intense force bond are enough to help Ray and Kylo overcome the dark side, just like it did for Revan and Bastila on the Star Forge. After all, when it came down to it, Revan confronted the evil he had done, turned away from it, and then killed the monster he had created by turning toward the dark side. Revan let the past die. He killed it when he had to. Who's to say that Kylo Ren won't do the same if the opportunity presents itself? All right. I'm going to level with you here. That was our best attempt to give a fitting thematic conclusion to Knights of the Old Republic. Uh, but this is the most honest answer we can give uh, regarding redemption. Regardless of our personal real-world conceptions of how redemption should work, the Star Wars universe treats it as a personal decision of inward atonement before the Force, which is, again, a seeming god entity in this universe, typically followed by an outward expression of that change of heart. And if we're being very honest, that is unsuspected unsurprising given how heavily Western literature relies on major savior and redemption narratives rooted in biblical tropes. Uh, so if Kylo Ren is redeemed and once again becomes a Ben Solo, we won't be seeing him hauled before a war crimes tribunal in episode nine. As Kelsey said earlier, Star Wars is a series of broad morality tales about an eternal struggle between good and evil that are supposed to serve as generalized life lessons to us. You know, I mean, they're, you know, like like a parable in the Bible. Um, the idea of redemption in Star Wars is supposed to represent the capacity for genuine change that humans can exhibit. We want to believe that bad people can recognize the evil they have done and change their ways, even if they usually don't get the punishment we think would fit their crimes. This is a theme that Star Wars reinforces on a regular basis, uh, regular basis through redemption, through the redemption of numerous characters, both in the old Legends can continuity and the canon as well. And in some ways, that fantasy is better than our reality. At least Darth Vader contemplated his sins and was remorseful for his actions just before death. That's far more than we can say for Henry Kissinger. And uh, on a personal note, I would, I would like uh, I would like to say thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to Kelsey. I never in my life thought we would get to Knights of the Old Republic, let alone Knights Two, which we're going to get to next time. Is my absolute favorite story in Star Wars. 
this game, Knights of the Old Republic, is my second favorite story. And thank you so much to everyone listening. Thank you to Kelsey. This is my love letter to Knights of the Old Republic, and I hope they read it. Hi. <laughs> and the problem with hoping for that with them for that final final arc with Kissinger is that Kissinger himself will never die. It's the curse of our age. Oh, oh God. So <laughs> thank you all for listening to a people's history of the old Republic. We have had fun telling it. We are enjoying continuing to tell it. Next time, we will cover the five years between Knights of the Old Republic and Knights of the Old Republic 2. Um, and there's a prequel comic to the sequel. We will find out about the Pyrrhic Jedi victory in the Jedi Civil War, the Conclave at Qatar, meet the Jedi exile Mitra Surik. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to Fotor on Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for the five-star ratings on iTunes. Ratings and comments help the show, and we really appreciate them. You can follow us on Twitter at PhotorPod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you so very much for listening, and may the Force be with you.